Hi everyone, it's Aidan Lang here, and I'm going to speak to you about Mozart's The Magic Flute, Die Zauberflöte. Magic Flute is always in the, those lists of the most popular operas. Why is that? Well, I think it's because it's got something for everyone. Part of its appeal is it's a very large cast, so that keeps its interest going. It's got such a strong, if somewhat diverse, storyline. I mean, it's a hard storyline to encapsulate, but you are engaged always as to what is going to happen next, and that's a great appeal for people. The variety of its music is also so important. It traverses a number of different styles, from the simple, almost folk-like tunes given to Papageno, which is symptomatic of the sort of music which was performed in a Zingspiel, and then music of huge sophistication in, say, in the arias of Tamino and Pamina, the vocal fireworks needed for both of the Queen of the Night's aria, and also the beautiful somber gravitas of the music of the priests of Sarastro. So there's massive variety in this work, style of tone, which is not just to do with the storyline, it's baked into this particular form called Zingspiel. At the end of the day, its popularity is based on the fact that it's got so much going from it. It's got famous musical highlights and, and a number of highlights. It's not just a one-hit wonder, this opera at all. As you sit through it, you will go, oh, my goodness me, it's that one, and oh, there's that. They keep coming. It has everything right. It's got extraordinary music, familiarity of, of many of the numbers, and also an opera which demands spectacle and it demands visual elan. It's got it all. What I love about Mozart's work is that at the end of it all, there is forgiveness and humanity and an understanding of not only of human nature, but of human foible. It's no coincidence that over four years, we have programmed all four of Mozart's great operas, Don Giovanni, Le Nozze di Figaro, Magic Flute, and next year, Cusifantuti, because these are four great cornerstones of a repertoire. What, for me, always amazes in both these works and indeed some of the less performed works, which I've had the great privilege to direct over many years, is the humanity which shines through not only Mozart's music, but also his, his dramaturgy. I directed one of his pieces of juvenilia, La, La Finta Semplice, the, the feigned simpleton. I think he was 13 when he wrote it. Musically, there was an understanding of human emotion and love, which was mind-boggling for a 13-year-old. And you just know you're in the presence of an extraordinary human being who seems to understand how people interact. For me, this is the mark of a truly great human being, that we are aware of our faults, we can hopefully correct them, and we can understand, but we don't attach blame in the magic flute, there is an understanding of all aspects of human nature with the two character paths of Tamina and Papageno. We had this sense of a man or two men starting the opera one way and ending transformed and enriched at its outcome. For me, I find that a wonderful thing. You leave the theatre a different person from the one who sat down in their seat, just as the characters do. And that, for me, is what all great art should be about. We enter this extraordinary experience of sitting in, in a theatre and engaging with a happening on stage. But 
what defines art from simply entertainment is that at the end of it, we go out wiser people, better citizens, if you like. We go out renewed and with a higher understanding of ourselves and of the way we interact with our society. That is why Mozart is a truly, truly great artist. The Magic Flute is often hailed as the perfect family opera, and I think that's right. I think it is. It's got a very a clear and vibrant storyline, and I think it is a great opera for, for young people to attend. It's a bit like watching Shrek that you can engage in, t- in two levels, and, and some of the parents get jokes which the children don't, but both have a thoroughly good time. We have family days on our, on our Sunday matter days. So what I would say to you parents out there is it might be a good idea to fill in your family on the storyline. Why not? It's readily available on our website or you can go to Google for it. Just to give the background story to prepare the family for what's going to happen. Maybe play one or two of the well-known hit tunes just to ease everyone in and make everyone understand that this is a really enjoyable afternoon at the theatre. It's an opera where there is something for everyone, and I think that's built into it. Mozart and Schikaneder were writing a work which was deliberately aimed to speak to a wide-ranging audience. It was performed not at the opera, it was performed at a uh, theatre just outside Vienna, outside the city walls, which specialised in this German form of Zingspiel, the uh, a sung play. So the format of Magic Flute is, is sung sections interspersed with dialogue. The Zingspiel was very much considered uh, you know, a sort of middle to lower class form of entertainment as opposed to the aristocratic entertainment, which was Italian opera. I'll talk in a moment about the sort of higher thought which, which underpins this work. But Mozart and, and Schikaneder put in, for example, little moments of, of quite simple philosophy when the characters come out of the action for a moment and give it a, li- a little moral. and they, get, they kind of give it directly to the audience, then go back into action. You, you see it for the first time in the quintet after the Queen of the Knights aria, uh, when Papagena's lock is taken off and he's learned his lesson not to, not to tell lies. And then all five characters, the three ladies, Papagena and Tamina, come forward to the audience and say, this is the, the punishment for, for any liar. And I, there are moments, a lot of moments throughout the opera where those moral lessons are given. And I think the feeling is that those lessons are given for those members of the, of the audience who may not have been Freemasons or may not have been versed in the philosophy of the, of the Enlightenment, which gets touched in at a higher level of work, but the educational aspect of the piece is there for all people. So there are simple lessons for the less philosophically minded, and one includes Papageno in that. It's also an opera with important philosophical points being made, which may be over the heads of people, but is there also for a more intellectual audience as well. And that's actually baked into the piece. The work itself moves at such a lick, it moves very quickly, it travels a long way. So you're all the time being moved forward by a multiple story level as all these characters go on their journeys. Flute is one of those 18th century operas which is quite hard to sum it up in one or two succinct sentences, but I'm going to try. It is about a journey. The meaning of that journey changes. On the one hand, you have Prince Tamino, who seems to be on a sort of adventure for the first half hour or so of the opera. He seems to be on a quest to find and rescue a girl. 
But halfway through Act One, that journey changes into a more spiritual quest, a quest to find understanding of human nature. The other quest, the other journey, is the secondary set of characters, Papageno, the bird catcher, and his quest to find a wife. The two characters, the two men, Tamino and Papageno, are two sides of our personality. And I think it's important that as they go on this parallel journey, you realize that together they form a complete person. Although the two men's journeys physically take different directions, at the end of the opera, each finds a resolution with both characters finding a resolution at the same time. So we, as human beings, are complete as both conflicting sides of our personalities come together. As always, there are some people who will find fault with a work, even a sublime masterpiece like this. And one of the criticisms aimed over, really since its beginning, against Magic Flute is its seeming hodgepodge of influences. You know, where does this story come from? How come we mix up the tradition of Zingspiel, which was, on the whole, a sort of popular form of entertainment, with the high thought, with Freemasonry, with this idea of a lot of the imagery coming from ancient Egypt. There's echoes, certainly, of the Orpheus myth, of of low-level characters, and the Sarastra and his priests, you know, operating at the highest level. It's very hard to find a through line on this. And I've given a lot lot of thought to this, and and it occurs to me that finding a through line is actually a very modern thing to want to do. Actually, if you go back to the time that this was composed and the circles Mozart was inhabiting in in the latter years of his very short life, um, he became a Freemason later on. And so for the last seven years of his, his life, he was a Freemason. But in those times, Freemasonry was very much linked to the movement called the Enlightenment. This was the Age of Enlightenment, where science was held as a means of discovering eternal truth. So so the, the ideas of the Enlightenment are very, very close to those of Freemasonry. This was a time when men of thought of all disciplines, of the arts and science, would meet together at the Masonic Lodge and discuss ideas ideas which were relevant to the times of great political unheaval. You know, the French Revolution has has just happened. The libertarian ideas uh, taught by the Enlightenment and indeed by the Freemasons were held responsible by by some um, aristocracies clinging on to power, the idea of freedom of thought and of individualism. So these were very turbulent times. We tend to think that all composers write for posterity. Um, because we do repertoire which has survived and is is repeated, and, and of course Magic Flute is one such. But actually, composers don't write for posterity. They write for the moment. This is a piece about Mozart's time. I don't, he wasn't sitting down to say, I'm, you know, in 200 years later, that my work will still be done. He, he wouldn't think that way. I think that that's important to, to understand when we, we view this. We can reinterpret it and take ideas and and find connections with with our times. And, and of course, we do that all the time. But composers wrote huge outputs for the consumption then. And the idea of posterity was not really in their consciousness. 
Schikaneder is hailed as being the librettist. He was the manager of the Theater of den Wieden, where the opera was first performed, and he played the role of Papageno. But what we know now is that all sorts of members of the cast actually were composers and actors in their own right. I have a feeling that somehow this piece was much more of a collective experience, even though Mozart wrote the music. It certainly felt now that Schikaneder was not alone in writing all the libretta, that, that one of their fellow performers, actually uh, the guy who was the sort of director of the opening production, a guy named Giesiger, also wrote some of the libretta himself. You feel that all these wide-ranging ideas were the result of endless nights of discussion. And Mozart took an idea from here and I took an idea from there. The Zingspiel format allows that. Were this an Italian opera seria, or indeed an Italian comic opera, it would be far too much information. But the freewheeling nature of Zingspiel, the fact that you can go from one musical style to another, means that it's open to adopting all sorts of influences and ideas. And I think it's very much a product of its time, of, of 1791, where... Ideas of, of meaning and thought and importance are being banded around in certain circles. In a funny kind of way, I think the diversity of influences it, we should view as a strength, not as a weakness. It's only a later thought about what an opera should be, what a, what a work of art should be, which has caused the problems, because Magic Flute doesn't fit into that format, and I think it is a product of its time. As I said earlier, this is a work which you can approach at two levels, as a really fantastic and entertaining night out, or you can mine the work for ideas of depth and meaning. Those ideas are there. In a nutshell, it is about an understanding of who we are as human beings, of human nature. As we look at the journey which Tamino takes in the second act, yes, he passes through a number of stages which are, we gather, linked, certainly by implication, to stages of the Masonic ritual. But it's, it's easy to let that become a red herring. Look at the higher purpose of the piece, and that is through a sort of cleansing process. That is not to deny one's base instinct, but when duty calls, it's important to resist temptation. So when three attractive ladies comes in, it's not to say you're, you're shutting out feelings of sensuality, but there are moments when one has to do that. Papageno finds it less easy when three girls are flirting with him. But Tamino, for that two minutes of that number, when he's been told not to speak, he doesn't speak and he doesn't give in. That sense of control when needed is part of the journey he goes through. The, the vow of silence. Yes, of course, it is an echo of the ability to keep a secret, which is part of the Masonic ritual. But it's not saying Tamino will become a Freemason. It's saying that the discipline is important to learn. It doesn't mean he's going to spend his entire life in, in silence, but he needs to go through the pain barrier of not communicating with a woman who, with whom he wants to be for a period, even if it causes misunderstanding. It's the discipline which is important, not the actual action of keeping silence in that moment. And that's the journey that Tamino is taking. He's not denying 
the opposing force. He's saying there are moments in life where you have to take a stand uh, if you're going to aspire to a higher level of understanding, which is necessary to be a ruler of your particular area of the community. One of the disciplines which has to be achieved in order to arrive at a level of, of, of higher understanding is the ability to conquer the fear of death, to understand that death is part of the life cycle and that passing on to a new generation is also there. Now, this comes in a number of ways. For example, even at the Papageno level, who a character who is very much af- afraid of death and fails the test, at the end, with the wonderful duet with Papagena, that is all about creating the next generation, an endless litter of children. But for Tamina and Pamina, significantly, both characters faint. They pass out under stress. Tamina faints as the, as the serpent is about, the dragon is about to, uh, to devour him. And Pamina faints when threatened by Monostatos. And the faint is considered to be a sort of symbolic death. And when you wake up, you're then in a brave new world, a new start. And as Tamina wakes up, and suddenly finds himself in his land and he's on the beginning of his journey and Pamina wakes up and suddenly Papageno is there. That is the start of their journey. So, so there's a sort of symbolic death throwing off one life in preparation for a new life. The Isis and Osiris myth is actually one of, of death and renewal as well. These ideas of a new life, of, of an afterlife, if you like, are important to understand this work. There's something to look forward to after death, even if it's a metaphorical death, as in the case of a faint of, of Tamina and Pamina. But more importantly, the trials of fire and water are the way that Tamino and and indeed Pamina, who joins him on that journey, are able to conquer that fear of death and finally pass through and be ready to be fully enlightened individuals. One of the fascinating things about the Magic Flute is that um, every production is different. It's probably the opera I have seen most different productions of in my life. It's partly because my wife spent a lot of her career singing either Pamina or on many, many occasions Papagena all around Europe. And I saw many, many different productions of this piece, which she was in. And everyone was different. I guess you divide it into two camps. Those who take a more show approach, a sort of musical theatre approach, a spectacle-based approach to the work, and those productions which take it extremely seriously. This fusion of seriousness and a lighter side seems to capture the piece best. I think if productions are too heavy on the showy aspect, they lose a lot of the piece. But at the same time, you can be a bit too serious and negate the amusing nature of the more comic aspects of work as well. Maybe it's a reflection of our desire to homogenize our experiences today and, and find this sort of unity of thought, whereas it's just not there in this piece. And I think you should just celebrate the fact that it has endless variety. If one scene seems a bit overly earnest to you, well, five minutes later, an entertaining scene is going to pop along. This mix of genres is, of course, absolutely typical of Shakespeare. What's quite fascinating is is our director, Chris Alexander, is a hugely experienced director of Shakespeare. And I think that may well be why he's given us such a varied and deeply well thought out 
a production because he understands this idea that comedy and seriousness exist hand in hand, as in life. This is an opera of contrasts, but contrasts which are necessary to each other. There's endless references to darkness and night, and references to daylight and the sun. The point is that it's not really about good and evil, it's about the fact that good and evil are two sides of the same coin. Day can only come after night. Day needs night. These contrasts are part of human nature. If someone has only one and not the other, they're not a complete human being. That dichotomy, I think, is built into the structure, the musical structure and the dramatic structure of the piece as well. That we are complete because we have many, many different facets to us. This production by Chris Alexander is a revival of the production from 2011. I think what's special about it is the way that the characters are so clearly defined in all their various guises by the wonderful and vibrant designs by Zandra Rhodes. And in many ways, the scenic picture helps bring those characters into focus. It is through this wide panoply of, of characters that we understand the meaning of the work. And I know you're going to be in for an absolute treat visually in terms of the use of color and textures and, and fabrics which Sandra always brings to her work and gives this particular production a life and energy which I think is really, really attractive. Chris himself is back to oversee the revival but I'm also very pleased to welcome to Seattle Julia Jones, our maestro. It's her first time conducting here. She's a particular expert in Mozart and Julia, interesting, she's English, but has spent most of her career, almost all of her career, in fact, in Germany. And I think brings a sort of understanding of a text which sometimes gets lost in some productions. A lot of people think this is a slightly inferior libretto and not worthy of textual scrutiny. But Julia, in rehearsal, has been very much emphasizing the need to make the text really mean something. And that's great because, of course, it is the words which drive any drama. As always, we have some welcome returnees and, and some new people on our stage. Both our Paminas, Lauren Snofer and Amanda Forsyth, have been with us before. Lauren was here earlier this season as Countess Adele in Cantori. And those of you who saw Handel Semele will remember the extraordinary outfit that Amanda wore as, as Iris, the zappy messenger of Juno in Handel's opera. So we're very, very glad to have both those ladies back with us. Our two Taminos, Andrew Stenson, was a young artist here, and Randall Bills we last saw as Don Ottavio in Chris Alexander's uh, Don Giovanni in 2014. So again, it's great to have those two gents back with us. Our two Papaginos, John Moore, was last with us as Count Almaviva in Figaro, and Craig Verm is making his Seattle Opera debut, although we'll be seeing him next season in Così Fantutti and indeed in Beatrice and Benedict. It's a great role, I think, to introduce Craig to our audiences. Every Papageno I've ever seen, uh, and I've seen a lot of Papaginos, um, manages to make the role their own. And one, one of the interesting things about our double casting is that it allows our audiences to see what is exactly the same production with sometimes very different tones from one cast to the other. And I think if ever there was a role which, which illustrates that, it's Papageno, the personality of the singer to shine through. So I'll be very curious to see, once we get on stage, um, 
the different way that John and, and Craig handle those dialogues and, by implication, their interaction with the audience. I've done the magic flute many times in my career, and one of the things which always amused me was the way that Papagenos will bring their own panpipes with them. It's a role which baritone of that Fach will sing often, and the panpipes become a very personal thing. I've known productions when, you know, we've had a set of panpipes for the productions, and our Papagena has said, oh, no, 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 I, I, I need to use my own, rather like a, a diva of the sort of 50s and 60s who'd travel around with their own costume. Well, Papagena's are very, very particular about their panpipes, and both our singers have brought their own with them, and we, we've had to dress them up to look right within the context of a production, but actually they are different, and, and if you see both casts, listen out for a different tone to the panpipes. It's a great pleasure to welcome to Seattle our Sarastro, Ante Yakunditsa. Ante I saw in Berlin singing Prince Gremin at the Deutsche Oper a couple of years ago, and it immediately struck me that while watching him sing the R in Act 3, that here was our Sarastro. Sarastro shouldn't be a, a grandfather figure. He's actually a friend of Pamina's father, so he's of that generation, and, and often a tradition plays him as this sort of grand old statesman, and he's actually a man of action, a, a man of thought and decision, who, who wants to affect social change. So I felt that Ante was the right playing age to, to play this role. It's also a sort of bass voice which is perfect for this role. And they don't grow on trees. Many basses sing the role, but when you hear a voice like his, you suddenly understand that this is the sound which Sarastra needs. Ante is Croatian, but really has been a singer in Germany at the Ensemble of the Deutsche Oper Berlin for, uh, I think, since kind of 2008. This is not only his Seattle Opera debut, but also his U.S. debut. But I notice he's at the Cologne in Buenos Aires a bit later this year. And I think this is a singer who's just about to explode. He's got, looking into his future engagements, he's now spreading out. And I, I'm, I'm really excited that we're, we're able to feature him slightly ahead of the game. Our Queen of the Night is Christina Pulitzi, who's a real expert in this role. This is one of those roles she specializes in. Sometimes you feel that vocally the Queen of the Night seems younger than her daughter Pamina. And Christina, I think, has, has a fullness of the sound and, and therefore becomes a very plausible mother. So we've got really two wonderful singers um, in those two significant roles. And the other thing I was going to mention was Rodel Rosell, who's singing Monostatos. Again, it's a debut with us. Rodel is an extraordinary singing actor. We're going to be seeing him as, as Goro in our next production in um, Madame Butterfly. And he's one of those amazing, physical, compelling performers. You cannot take your eyes off him when he's on stage. And I know you'll enjoy his, his performances as Monostatos. One feature of Magic Flute is, of course, the, the three spirits. And this is where our education programs are really beginning to bear fruit. Our, our youth opera chorus, which fed the children's chorus in Hansel and Gretel, and that, of course, became a, a fertile hunting ground for the two sets of young singers who we need for this production. So I think, for me, it's, it really emphasizes the way that, as a company, what you see on the stage at McCaw is in many ways the fruit of activities going on for, uh, for far longer. And it's great to see the paths of uh, the way these three young singers, well, these six young singers in, in our two teams, have moved through the ranks and have now achieved a, a status to be able to perform alongside such wonderful singers.